to the Wild Feather Podcast. I'm Brooke Dunwell, serial entrepreneur, sponge for life, and lover of people. Join me as we uncover the stories of courageous female entrepreneurs, founders, and investors pushing beyond limitless boundaries. Let's explore their creative journeys and pursuits to greatness. Today on our show, we have Piper Foster Wilder. Piper is the founder and CEO of 60 Hertz Microgrids based in Alaska. The company develops software to maintain microgrids from village infrastructure to remote industrial sites to resiliency microgrids on critical infrastructure. The company has won more than seven national and international awards for their work. Piper takes us on her journey of raising funding, hiring tech talent, and doing her due diligence. She's brilliant, she's savvy, and she was named in Aspen's magazine's 10 Women of Aspen. So Piper, I'll leave it up, I'll turn it over to you and tell us how you got started, how you became a founder. Oh, Brooke, well, it's really nice to have the chance to visit with you and um, and share our story. 60 Hertz, I always like to say it goes back to a long walk. I had, uh, I had just met my husband. I lived in Colorado at the time, but he was from Alaska. And he said, do you wanna go on a date with me? And I'm gonna go walk between the village of Point Hope and Kivalina with some some friends and you should come with us. And I like adventures, but I really had no idea what I was in for. So I flew to Alaska. It took like three flights, it took two days to get to Point Hope, which on a map is the northwesternmost point of North America. It's like where the Bering Land Bridge would have connected with North America and is an Inupiaq village there. So I like got out of a little float plane and, you know, just barely landed in this driving wind. And there was my, my boyfriend at the time to, to go on this massive adventure. And what we found, what we, you know, we saw lots of great wildlife and had a beautiful time. But the thing that made the biggest impact on me were the Alaska Native communities that we um, landed in and Point Hope and ultimately walked toward. And for people who are not as familiar with Alaska's geography, um, there are native indigenous communities, 200 of them, and they have microgrids, which are mini electricity grids to power these communities because the land mass is way too big to have traditional utility infrastructure. You could never get a distribution line there. Fast forward, we ultimately got married. I ended up moving from Colorado to Alaska and started thinking about microgrids, a term I had never heard before. Um, but because of my background in energy, you can't be in Alaska without talking about microgrids. And ultimately ended up wanting to address issues of rural energy poverty based on what I was seeing in these communities on that first date and then continued work. And ultimately, uh, we started a software company. I thought, well, I want to I want to start addressing this, particularly rural maintenance needs. And so 60 Hertz became a computerized maintenance management software system company, a CMMS. And uh, that was, you know, started with with a lot of passion on nights and weekends in 2016, but ultimately founded the company in 2017. That's awesome. I love what you guys are doing. I think that's really cool. Thanks. Yeah. So what did you do prior to this, the 60 Hertz? Well, there'd been, um, you know, I've always worked, I'd like to say I've worked on different sides of the table, had been with a family foundation, not my own, but another's worked for, for them for some time in Colorado, worked at a nonprofit called Rocky Mountain Institute for a span, had worked for a government program on energy efficiency, and then had helped start a company, an Internet of Things company uh, called Amatis Controls. And 
you know, I will never forget the thrill of making something, the thrill of coming up with a product, you know, kind of like staying up late and getting, you know, getting the prototype ready or having to meet a deadline to show someone your first vision and had the chance to do that at Amatis. And as my career has evolved, that thrill of making something, um, even a prototype has always continued to be a spark for me. And so this chance to come here and continue trying that really, really made the difference. Yeah, that's awesome. So where are you at today in regards to the company? At what stage are you at? Yeah, well, so as I mentioned, I started six, uh, 60 Hertz in 2016, sort of on the nights and weekends thesis. Um, and then by 2017, we'd gotten a little bit of friends and family money had won a couple of contests and that gave some prize money, really modest, like, you know, several thousand dollars of prize money. And then we applied to an accelerator uh, in Alaska through Launch Alaska that had some prize money attached to it. So that gave us our initial, say, 150000 to get going. And um, at that point, built a prototype and um, did a lot of market fit, a lot of traction testing and ultimately had enough customers by uh, by 2017, that summer of 2017, that we were able to raise our first 500,000 of venture capital. And that got us enough to get a little bit further down the road, build a prototype, a real prototype of the software. We built the very first prototype that we tested on with prize money for 13,000. And that helped to, to just sort of get us on our feet. And it was it was a proof of concept, essentially, took out a loan against my house for a later version of the software that was a $100,000 build, and then um, have continued to evolve it. We closed our first seed series raise that was 1.3 in December of 2019, and then that got us a good distance such that we then just closed our second seed, um, and it was, it was a nail biter. It was totally nerve wracking. We thought we only needed 700,000. And there was a moment that we weren't even sure we'd make the $300,000 minimum, you know, had to call uh -huh. on some very special angels and say, can you please just give 25,000 more, which is a lot of money. Um, and, uh, anyway, that then there was enough investor confidence. And I think they all saw the social proof. So in May of this year, we just closed a second 1.3 and that'll get us toward our series a next year. That's awesome. So tell me about that process of funding, getting funding. I know that we talked about it before, but I think a lot of people can relate. Um, it sounds like there were some hoops to jump through and some, as you put it, nail biters. <laughs> you know, I learned a lot about raising money from angel investors in this round. In the first round, we were lucky to have the support of a utility company who is one of our major customers and also from a, a, a venture firm that has a thesis around impact investing. So those were more institutional or corporate type investors. But this round, I'd like to say it's been my round of angels on so many, on so many levels, but the initial um, angel investors who had begun hearing about 60 Hertz um, were through uh, groups, sort of these investor, angel investor clubs like E8, uh, in Seattle Sea Change Fund um, has joined this round. Um, I ended up making pitches to so many different angel groups um, throughout. How many did you do? Do you know? Oh, I, 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 at the end, this round had 47 pitches, 47 really? pitches. 
47 different entities. And I think at this time we have upwards of 23 investors. They're not all their own line on the cap table this round. So to get to the 1.3, it's 23 investors. Many of them came under a special purpose vehicle, which I would really encourage anyone to, to, to force a couple of learnings. I think from this round, number one, I had been nervous and set the minimum pretty low. It was a $20,000 minimum investment. And I kind of wish I'd been braver about that because it would have aggregated people a little easier, perhaps said something like 20,000 minimum, but you know, investors under 50 will need to go into an SPV or somehow channeled it just because the investor relations become challenging. The investor rights agreement becomes challenging, even just basic communication on management rights and whatnot. That just is a lot of heads, uh, mouths, mouths to herd, heads to herd. That's mm-hmm. the wrong metaphor, mm-hmm. but um, you know, it's a lot of folks to have to keep track of. That said, what I've loved about having a round of angels is it's that many more people that are advocating for 60 Hertz that are using their personal connections. High net worth individuals are going to be influential in the companies and in the places where we want to work. And that's really important. Um, If I'm learning anything so far, and I'm sure you've seen this with your companies too, Brooke, it's that it's all about social proof. It's all about who our network knows. It's all about the doors that someone who has a real relationship with whomever I would like to do business. It's about those relationships um, mm-hmm. as opposed to necessarily having a cold call and proving our value. Yeah. How did you get in front of those 47 investors? Did you just coldly reach out to them? Yeah, it started with, um, we were grateful that there'd been a pitch event or two um, that I had the chance to, to put our pitch in front of. Well, I say number one is I had worked hard on getting a pitch deck that had great images, that was well-designed. I didn't recognize before, but these pitch deck assets are are really an investment. We got ours for a steal at $500, but I think it's often close to a thousand to get a a proper pitch deck. Second of all, had worked with a pitch coach to practice even the bones of the pitch. What we do Mm -hmm. as a computerized maintenance management system software is not easy for many people to grasp. And so learning how to present it helped. And then finally attending these pitch events just to, to practice, 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 fielding the questions, see which questions were common, make sure somebody else was there to help me record the questions so I could then either incorporate them in further pitches or have polished answers. Um, and then ultimately just went through a number of these angel websites and applied through, you know, kept up our ProSeeder profile and there are similar platforms that we used to um, be easily easy to vet. How did you find your pitch deck or your pitch coach? Oh yeah, um, that one came through our one of our venture investors. But happy to, oh, to nice. share with anybody. Cindy Salicki is oh. is her name, and I can provide that to, to anyone. But she was great, um, and I think Upwork has a fair number of good entities or folks that you could test. Ah, that's good to know. Yeah, yeah. That that's been that's been interesting, and even watching other portfolio companies uh, in the fact we're in Factor E's portfolio, seeing my colleagues pitch, it's really helpful because we're in a similar space, and I can really empathize with how they will say what they're doing and think it makes perfect sense. And even being as close as I am to the business, just like no idea what they're trying to communicate, and yeah, I think that 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 befalls lots of us. Put it to put it in simple terms. Yep. So now I, we talked about you being a non-technical founder building a software company. I personally know how this goes. <laughs> so 
tell us about that experience and what you've learned and are there any things you would do different? What are the challenges? I just had a conversation today with um, a lady who was raising the concern about how women founders, they have these fantastic ideas, but they don't have the confidence or the resources or know where to go or what to do, especially when they're non-technical founders to be able to execute. So I would be very interested to hear your experience and thoughts on being a non-technical founder. Uh I mean, what I would like to say really is if you have you a great get, idea. You can get as real as possible, you know. <laughs> Just go home now. Don't raise money. Don't even attempt your idea because it is only going to be frustrating. <laughs> I don't know. I always love to tell people that we, you know, we didn't want to start a software company. We felt we had to uh, at this time. By then I had co-founders and, and um, we saw a gap in the market. We sat in on demos for 15 similar CMMS products and learned that they wouldn't work for our use case. And we thought, well, you can order a latte with an app. Like, why wouldn't we be able to figure out how to make a maintenance app? And I can tell you all the reasons why now, but it, it has been just a brutal process. In fact, I was on my previous call only just reliving and rehashing this. You know, we've gone through three and a half CTOs and had... And, and I think what here, if there is anyone in a similar situation that might happen to listen to this podcast, I think the trap is you don't know what you're doing. You're looking for someone you can trust. It is going to be a white male, which are great. I'm married to a white male. I love him. There are plenty of great white males, but there are also a lot of egotistical jerks out there who may or may not be white or male. And that's who you're dependent on. That's who you're going to be dependent on as a non-technical founder to help navigate hard questions. And so the ability to have a trust relationship where you can be vulnerable and ask a dumb question, not only once, but multiple times. And I think this would even apply to a CFO or other, other key stakeholder relationships in, in a growing business, that we need that ability to be absolutely candid and to know that you're not getting snowballed by the answer. But here's the big thing, and this is what I wish I had been far braver about, is that if something didn't feel right, or if something seemed too fuzzy, or if an answer didn't seem, if I couldn't repeat the answer to a third person that that CTO had just given me, then go back and start questioning it or be braver about saying, I don't like how this engagement is going. I need you to re respond to me this way, or I, I need this kind of this kind of engagement is it. And so I became very fearful, was afraid to fire people, you know, went through a couple of horrible iterations. We had one CTO that only lasted three weeks. And, you know, he kept, he kept then saying, you know, what you need to do is this or the pro your problem is that I said, there is no we, like we are building this company together. And if you just, you know, three weeks in continue seeing this as me and my problem, as opposed to something you're invited to, it's to solve and address. That was one that was one story. I mean, here's what I wish I also would have done is instead of saying, oh, but I'm the non-technical co-founder to enroll myself in a Coursera course or get some coaching on a weekly basis to start really understanding the vocabulary of tech process to understand the org chart of how a more sophisticated software company would be staffed to hire a good even contract product manager to be the voice of customer, but also better translate that to the developers. I wish I had, mm, it wasn't that I didn't take the time, but I didn't even know that that was an option to start 
skilling myself mm-hmm. in the the vocabulary and the business process of, of development. Um, and, and so that's been an expensive and long, long burning lesson. <laughs> yeah, I can understand. Um, but you just recently hired a new CTO and it sounds like it's working out splendidly. We have, we have now the tech team that, that we have been looking for. And, you know, these things will continue to evolve, I'm sure. But um, a, a dear colleague who I'd been part of a, another founding team with uh, was on our advisory board and needed to step in as we had an emergency staff transition when the last CTO left. And he has been reliable and clear. And it seems like no matter what comes out of Sebastian's mouth, I understand it. I agree with it. And I don't feel I'm being snowballed and that, that that's the relationship. I mean, so much of the stuff I always draw the parallels with dating, right? Like, you know, when you just like find people that you click with, you find people that you click with and it shouldn't be that much different in the workspace. It's just that in a startup environment, you don't have a lot of opportunities to shop around or, um, you know, go on a hundred dates with CTOs. Right. Right. Well, and yours are local, right? So you're, you're in Alaska. So is your CTO in Alaska? Oh no, uh, we actually had yeah, gratefully their their investors always worry that there's a talent vacuum in Alaska and I don't think that's the case but there are indeed just fewer people that live here and we have a fairly nascent startup community, fairly nascent tech community. So these are all things that were, you know, growing and developing. In our case, our CTO is living in Detroit, um, though we have oh. lived together in, in, in Colorado. And then most of our developers, we have one developer in Denver, the balance are in Colombia and in the Ukraine. And, um, you know, it has a lot of early morning, early hours for us in Alaska, uh, start times uh, just because of our time zone, but it's working so fine. You offshore, some of your, you offshore some of your work. Absolutely. It's so much more cost effective for a company at our scale and really high quality talent. And then the sprint demos every two weeks are sort of like a United Nations call. I really love it. Yeah, (laughs) that's fun. (laughs) I think it's really helpful to have that CTO, whether, you know, whatever level you want to bring in, if you want to bring in a CTO or a senior product or senior developer, whatever the case may be, but that can communicate. Do you find that it's easier to manage the offshore team with that technical lead on your team versus like you doing it? Oh, a hundred percent. Because in our very first iteration, we had a technical product owner who was based in Vienna communicating with a colleague of his in Austria, communicating who was in, sorry, Denmark, and then communicating with their dev team who was in Pakistan. But I didn't know to even ask those questions, like where are our developers or, you know, see a sprint demo every two weeks. I didn't even know that I could, that those were rhythms or routines within software development that I could have been participating in or a part of. So the other big component in the last year that's changed is hiring a product manager, a software product manager. And I think that buffer, that individual who is half developer and half sales and and half, you know, management um, communicator, that role has been key. Someone, I got good advice that I didn't think was good at the time in, in August of 2019. And an advisor said, you just need to, don't hire a CTO. You need to hire an excellent product manager. And I laughed and said, no way, what we need is a CTO. And I think we were both right at that time. We did need someone to develop the architecture starting from scratch, developing the platform, et cetera. 
but where a CTO or head of technology is going to be making selections about what platforms to be using, et cetera, the product manager really is that buffer so that when I say, what I want is for the product to do this, or you know, the, the joke around the office is that I just love inserting GIF files. I love GIFs um, everywhere we can put them. And we are, you know, our platform can't do that yet, but I wish it would. And it's like completely useless and we should not spend developer money doing that, but it's at least um, someone that could think about how to incorporate that in a future product story. Yeah, that's awesome. I love those too. Those are fun. <laughs> Um, so what keeps you going? What keeps you, your passion and persistence? What, what keeps you going through all the challenges and conquering and keep going, mm. keep going? Man, you know, 60 Hertz is a social impact company. And so our purpose is to help people achieve their full potential and assets, their full lifespan on the human side of things. Many of us have had moments of underemployment where we had so much more to give than there was a market or an opportunity to give. I know I certainly have. And so my heart really is with people who are at an entry-level position. For some people, that in and of itself is an awesome job and a great way to serve. And I think many of our maintenance professionals are carers. They are people who really are the nurses and midwives of assets. Um, and so knowing that our software might help someone be honored for the good work that they're doing, that our software might help someone gain more skills if they're just beginning their career path, um, or to help them remember how to do something that they might have trouble learning or trouble figuring out. Those are the really rewarding examples for me. And like we have a channel in Slack that is called Operator Insights. So we can hear stories from the customer success team about what's working well. And I think that's just really great nourishment for the whole team to remain engaged in why we're doing this. And from a climate perspective, 60 Hertz is also helping with ensure that renewable assets continue working at their full output and their full potential. I mean, nothing is worth, worse than imagining a huge solar array or a battery system that was installed but isn't working very well even several years after installation. So that's what we're also combating and ensuring that these assets do what they're meant to for the 30-year lifespan that they're installed. So for us, those kinds of impacts, but it's really to your question, how do you keep focused on that and developing pathways to remind ourselves of how we are serving our customers and stay visible on it? I mean, you just get overwhelmed by minutia. I think that's part of the startup culture is you have to be such a Renaissance person and like simultaneously switch from being a spokesperson to like in the weeds of finances to troubleshooting an HR problem and it's just like such constant change. And I know you've experienced this too. So I think that's, yeah, remaining, remaining with those frequent touch points to, to feel good about what we're doing. That's critical. Yeah. I think that's awesome. It's so true though. Uh, you do have to <clears throat> be adaptable. That's for sure. So looking forward, what would you say is ahead what's up ahead of you and how can we help you? What can we do to help your success? I appreciate that question. You know, um, I've been thinking we just closed, we just closed this round as we talked about. And so series a in theory won't be for another 10 to 12 months, but I've been talking with a lot of series a investors over the last 10 days to get clear on what milestones they are looking for us to achieve. And that's a great idea. Oh, I mean, somebody gave me that. Do you that. think a lot of people have done that? 
I don't know. I don't know. And I yeah. nearly didn't because you're so flipping tired of talking to investors. The last thing you wanted to go to was talk to more investors. But <laughs> it's um, it's actually been really valuable because I felt good about I felt good about where we were, you know, until I started talking to these guys and realized how much further we have to go and what bigger milestones to hit. But it's been so clarifying to to hear. In a way, it's black and white. You know, it's like you can have all the social media presence, or you can have hits on the website, or you can have a couple of decent reference customers. But if you're not, in our case, at that five hundred thousand ARR point, then go home. Like it really doesn't. You know, like so that for, that therefore has really sharpened our focus on what kinds of customers we need to be pursuing and who we can throw by the wayside or just let evolve more organically as opposed to actually chasing. So that's been helpful. Um, also some financial metrics to understand our customer acquisition costs, to understand something called the magic number, to see what our lifetime of value of a customer actually is. There's just a range of metrics I was unaware of. So that would be my request is, you know, if there's, if people have access to software as a service investors, if people are listening who are series A investors giving us um, more visibility or the chance to, to reach out and start making more of those connections or people that are investing in female-led companies or people that are investing in impact companies. Um, I think that's interesting for us. And then the second big ask is we are doing our best on the marketing front, but we, we don't totally know what we're doing and having more insights about good marketing or a marketing plan or anybody that has ideas on, on that. Um, and even if you're not, then the simplest ask is, can you please follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter? And it's, it's 60 Hertz software. <laughs> what are you all doing today for marketing? Uh, we are, um, we have a modest engagement for search engine optimization or search engine marketing. And we're doing a lot of blogging, um, or I wish mm -hmm. I was doing more blogging, but I, we try to get one up at least once a month or every two weeks. And um, and then speaking at conferences or um, memberships memberships in, in our right industry sectors, then that's the other way we've been reaching out. That's awesome. I'm certain that there will be some marketing people that could give you some tips along the way that listen to this. Perfect. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. I'm so excited for you. I think what you're doing is fantastic, and I think it definitely will change lives and have an impact. Um, if you could give another founder any piece of advice, what would you give them? Hmm. Oh, there's so much advice. It really depends a lot on the week, yeah. but I think, I think some things that have been, um, important in our growth and important, gosh, I've got, okay. So I'll just, I'll summarize it in maybe three, three big buckets. Um, and the, the first one is in terms of just creating a lot of space for intuition and the wisdom of the universe and spontaneity that all of our hard work and all of our, you know, just like being a students only goes so far and having the space for those spontaneous interactions, you know, I really, I feel so strongly that just making the space for things to come to us and trusting that, that 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 goodness, if we're here for reasons to serve, if we're here for reasons to bring a great product to market, like that daily discipline of, of like having quiet and having trust, it goes, I think, further than all of our best efforts. Um, and then second of all, having, having a, an advisory board, or at least a lot of mentors that you regularly and routinely reach out to, to ask loads of questions, because few of us know what we don't know 
And it's really easy to get lost in the weeds and miss out on that game-changing advice. I can think of numerous phone calls where somebody offered me advice that saved the company a lot of times, you know, where they just like, they had the vantage and the expertise to say, you're not going to want to do that. Instead, think about it this way. And it's easy to, it's easy to be humble and listen because I haven't done this before. And, you know, I'm really hungry to get coached. Do you find a point on that? So as a startup founder, do you find it easier to reach out to people to ask questions or do you find that people just naturally give you their opinion? Oh, I'm always kind of wary when they give the opinion because it's not always like, <laughs> as yeah. I, I try to, I do cherry pick. Like I will, I will look for people that I find smart or that I hear saying things that I hadn't heard before and then seek them out. And these pitch events and conferences, I don't know if that's in every sector, but the energy sector certainly has a lot of them. And so I find, I find I've kind of collected my, my folks to reach out to that way. And, you know, a couple Are times a year. Always in Alaska or do you travel to the States or like to the, like we call it the California States too. to the West coast. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> When I first moved here, people would say, oh, did you, did you go out for the winter? And I was like, out, oh, yeah, because it's like, <laughs> were you jailed while you were in Alaska? <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, yeah, no, typically lower 48. Although I will tell you a super sweet story. I uh, I think that would have been August of 2018, attended the Alaska Power Association Conference. And it was just this like three-day event in Fairbanks. I had just had a baby. And my husband was out of town for his own assignment. And so I like found someone, a friend of a friend who was a nanny and looked after my little one while I like scurried back and forth to the conference sessions and and nursed. But that three-day event yielded four of our five early customers. It was just, yeah, it was so, you know, I think if we're in a sector that has some word of mouth or if people can get themselves at these events and just try to have an authentic conversation or two or five. And um, that ended up being super, super important. That's awesome. Uh, Just out of curiosity for the events during COVID, did they have events? Were they virtual or are they getting back into the swing of? We've been all virtual energy sector, all virtual. And then because we're in a microgrids, which is like this emerging weird thing in um, international development, everybody is everywhere. And so that's almost forced the microgrid community to be online Mm. because we can't all, it's way too expensive for everybody to get to Africa or to get to Southeast Asia or to get to Latin America. And that's been beautiful. If anything, the virtual has saved us a lot of money on business development. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. Back to your third thing. I don't know if you'll remember, but. Oh yeah. um... Oh, okay. Okay. Here's my, here's my latest favorite idea is just having um, a closer relationship with a CFO or a fractional CFO at about this phase. I think, you know, right off the bat had super advice from someone's mom who was our, our first CFO, just super bright lady, Kathy Cronin. I will always be grateful to Kathy for her help for us. Initially, she'd been really successful um, leading a hospital in Alaska and then was volunteering to help with, with young startups and whatnot. And I said, Kathy, this was, again, I said, Kathy, we have to raise $200,000 in the next month so we can build this software. What should we do? And she said, I've got an idea for you. I think you can get a loan. I think you can get a loan for this. And which never in my a million years would I thought would have thought we could have qualified, but we did. I did have to collateralize my house against it, but we knew we had a line of sight to pay that back because of those early four customers 
that we knew mm. once the software was built that they would have the license fees that would pay it back. So that's just a point that CFOs, the financial officer is going to have a great vantage on some just creative thinking. We tend to pigeonhole a financial officer to being, you know, somehow related to accounting or bookkeeping, or maybe they will help us make sure we're not losing any money and prove to others that we're not embezzling it. But it's so much more creative than that. Mm. The CFO that we have right now, Adam Ahern, is just one of, again, someone that I can ask dumb questions to multiple times, feel completely safe with, and has yielded a lot of creativity driving our business model, where he would say, mm. well, what about this additional revenue? And let's model that out and see it. So having a, a competent CFO or someone that you can contract with, I think that's my third piece of advice right now. Is your CFO full-time? At what point or stage do you think you should bring a CFO, like a full-time CFO on? Man, I would, Brooke, that's another, okay, so I'll, I'll volley that back and say, I don't know and would love to hear that from others too. I mean, okay. at this point, we're, we're saying maybe not even at Series A, but maybe more engagement. Um, I, we don't totally know yet. Yeah. Do you contract yours out? Yep. He's, we're just, we're on a, we're on a monthly contract with him. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's tricky. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, like I'll ask around, right? So when I get some investors on here, I'll ask what their opinions are about the CFO, but you know, I remember going for funding or pitching, right. And this was like seed, pre-seed, and we had to have so many customers. If we didn't have revenue, it was based on revenue, customers, and then if we had a CTO on board, right? Like we had to have that tech person, but I don't remember them saying anything about CFO. However, we didn't go for series A or series B, right? I think it seems, I don't know what they would fill their time with all day if you had a full-time CFO. Exactly. Because until you've got that many contracts coming through or until you have that many, um, you know, compliance issues, if they're federal grants or uh, administering, I don't know, I'm probably really cutting short all that a CFO can do if those are the two examples I've just given. But right. um, I think they're really... Sometimes is... they fit into operations too, depending on the type of finance person. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Did you have, did you guys try to apply for grants? We have, we have actually, um, and I am proud to say that my batting average is like oh for ten. I'm evidently terrible at grant writing. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're just so daunting. I don't know. <laughs> no, we're, we're actually, it's such a waste of time. It's like so much effort, and then you just don't get anything back. And at that point, I think I could have talked to ten customers and actually had a shot at it. And instead, it's yeah. just this like black hole, and you just get a rejection email. So I think there are a lot of great ways to get grants, but I don't know them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah we went down that road too um yeah no such luck for us either but that's okay somebody out there got them somebody exactly <laughs> who probably didn't deserve them <laughs> <laughs> that's funny well i so appreciate your time today and it's great hearing your story and if we can help you in any way we'll definitely um pass along any marketing information and um I would be happy to make some intros to some investors and we'll have some investors listening. So you've got quite a variety of people though, that you can, um, that you can go to, I guess the pool of series a investors in your sector, plus the female led plus, you know, software as a service, like there are a lot of opportunities out there. So 
I think that you'll do well. Ah, uh, thanks. I really appreciate that. That's, yeah. Uh, yeah. I have this other last question, and this is like the latest thing floating around the top of my mind. If you have another second. Yeah, sure. Well, I'm curious, you know, we think so much the power dynamic between us and investors is like this, like here's the big people with the money and the ideas. And here's us. That's just like trying to scrape through this. But as I try to rebalance that to ask future investors, what, what does their package include? Like, I would like to shift the relationship so that it's more than just like, do you want to place 2 million and lead, you know, series A, we lead that round. I'm really interested in what investors are offering as their value prop besides cash. Because I think mm. the demand, particularly for a female-led company, maybe, maybe I'll walk that right back, maybe for any any entrepreneur, is to say, what kind of support are you going to offer me if I need CEO coaching? If you are really betting on this company as the racehorse that's going to win, then are, what kind of feed are you giving us? What kind of blanket are you giving us? Like, where's how good is the track that we're running on? And I don't know that many funds are offering that value prop to a startup, but it seems prudent if they are well watering this investment. Right. To, to Have you asked fund. these recent investors that question? No, that you've been no. It only just dawned on me this weekend. I was like, dang, what are they giving us? Right. I also think a very important question to find out the answers to is how involved are they and how demanding are they with their relationship with the customer or with with the company like with the the company getting funding so because true. i've heard stories where some are very hands-off some are over the top like want to be involved in everything micromanaging even if they put in maybe twenty five thousand, right so i've actually spoken to two people in the last two weeks where they walked away from funds being mm -hmm. offered because of they just didn't feel like the relationship would be a healthy one. Like they wouldn't be able to do what they set out to do. Right. Interesting. That was correct. Um, so I think that that's a very valid question. Like, what are you going to, what's your pitch? What are you, what are you going to do? How involved are you going to be? And what support are you going to offer? And what's your value? Right. Wow. Because yeah. I'm really glad you pointed that out. Cause I think it's, you know, depending on where you are in the fundraise, there's no way you're going to turn down 10 bucks, but you know, let alone 25 grand, but at that overreach, you're going to end up paying for it. Uh, if the investor doesn't have the right. self-discipline to just let the money go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and if you want to just fill out reports all the time, you're not going to get much done either. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's a great question to ask though. And I doubt that very many people ask it. Hmm. Yeah, maybe I'll start bringing that up. Is. What the, yeah, maybe uh, I, yeah. I'm glad to hear that because, you know, you're talking with a lot more people than I am. So I, that's helpful to hear that it feels like it might be useful to ask. Absolutely. Um, and I mean, what's the track record in this business and how have they helped others, right? It's, I mean, basically, you're interviewing them just as much as they're taking the info from you, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's really true. That's really true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, hmm. that's awesome. Any other questions you have or any other ideas you want to throw out there? No, that was my burning one. That was the that was the last for today. <laughs> but... <laughs> uh, well, feel free to reach out if you have some more because we can include them in our blogs and social media. 
But anyway, well, I so appreciate you taking some time out to um, chat today. And it was great hearing your story. And um, have a great evening with your little one. Thank you. Oh, Brick, really so appreciate what you're doing for entrepreneurs and for women. And thanks for all of your time and attention, truly. Yeah, absolutely. And have a great one. Okay, you too. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Wild Feather. Be authentic, be limitless, and love yourself.